Uh, early in November, my family and I planned a trip to North Carolina, and we had all the details planned. We uh, knew at time what we were going to leave. We knew um, everything. We had all the details right. We, we wanted to leave at nine in the morning, and um, I knew there was three tolls as we drive through that West Virginia Turnpike to get to North Carolina. There are three tolls, and they're two dollars a piece. So I don't really have a lot of cash. I'm not a cash person. And, and so, but I had a little bit in my house, and I was like, I had $4. And it's like, Kate, do you got any money? <laughs> and she found $2 in her wallet. Like, good, we can get through the tolls. Uh, and so we were ready to go, and we got everything packed. And um, uh, my 9 o'clock, you know, wanting to leave by turned into more like 9.45 because you four kids and all the craziness. And, and so we're, we're finally packed up. We're finally in the van. We got all the iPads and movies playing, and we're, we're all ready to go. And we get going, and I'm like literally three minutes down the road, and I'm like, feeling kind of weak and like I didn't eat breakfast and so we got a detour I got to run into a, a fast food place real quick and grab a little snack so I can you know face this drive and and then when we get the food and like it's 10 15 they're like okay we're an hour behind but we're, we're going now and so we're driving and so we're going and 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 we get into West Virginia and the first toll is coming up and and I pull out my wallet and I grab my two dollars and I'm ready to pull up and as I pull up I notice the sign says four dollars and I'm like, I have been driving this route my entire life to go from North Carolina to Louisville to see my family. It used to be a dollar, and then a dollar twenty-five. Then it became it's been two dollars forever. When did it change to four dollars? No one told me. And so I give them the four dollars, and now I've only got two left, and there's two tolls left. And so I'm thinking, okay, we're gonna have to stop somewhere. I'm gonna have to find an ATM to get some more cash. And so I call my dad and say, hey, dad, uh, in between the first and second toll, uh, is, there, is there any particular place good to stop? Or, you know, where, where should I stop? Yada, yada, yada. He said, there's only one place, one exit between these two tolls. It's the Tamarack. Don't miss it. I'm like, okay. I finally, I see the sign for the Tamarack. And I'm like, okay, there it is. It's in five miles. You know, after so long, it's in five miles. I'm like, okay, there it is. We'll stop and pull in there. And then it's like, oh, Tamarack in three miles. And then the next toll is before the Tamarack. And I'm like, they're not, I don't, what am I going to do? I got no money. They don't take a card. And so I pull up and I say, I got $2. <laughs> what, what are we going to do here? And she goes, oh, it's okay. I can print you a receipt and you can pay it online. I'm like, this is great. This is great. So she prints out a receipt that's this long. And I, I get it and I look at it and I say $2. And then I see $5 convenience. I'm like, $9? To drive through this toll, they've paid for this road seven times already. But okay, and so we stop and finally get some money to pay for the next one because I ain't doing that twice. And then we finally get there and everything. And needless to say, the trip did not go as planned or as expected. It did not go the way that I had planned it out. Nothing about it did. And that kind of explains this year. This year, nothing has gone as expected. I remember being in my office at the end of last year, excited, writing things on my whiteboard of here's my goals and here's my plans and here's the things we're going to do in 2020 and being excited for what we were going to do. And like within a month and a half of the year, it's like, well, all right, that's going to not happen. And all of you are the same. You've all had plans and things that have had to be canceled and uh, we've had to push through and push forward through so many difficulties this year. Nothing went according to plan for anyone except for the Lord. 
This year did not catch God off guard. It did not ruin his plans. Everything is going exactly as he intended it to. We may not be able to see always what the Lord is up to, or we may not be able to understand his plans, but we can rest knowing that his sovereign hand is at work in even the smallest of details in our lives. So what I want us to do this morning is look at a book, the book of Esther, the story of Esther this morning, as a reminder that the Lord is always working. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther. We'll be in chapter 2. And as you're turning there, take a moment and pray. Father, this morning we gather. And as we gather on this last Sunday of the year, we pray that you would remind us that in all the difficulties and all the hard things, that you would remind us that you're there. You're with us. You've never left us. As we read this story and as we study this, uh, this book of Esther and the story of Esther, we pray that you would remind us that even in the smallest of details and the coincidence of things that you're there. Speak to us this morning, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Most people said, our story begins, before we read real quick, Esther chapter 2, our story begins with a king who is having this huge party, this party that was going to last for seven days, and the king was going to parade everything that he owned uh, through the palace so that everyone at the party could see what he, what he owned and how rich and powerful he was. And so toward the end of that, he had begun to drunk, drink too much wine and wasn't thinking very clearly, and so he decided he wanted to bring his queen out. To, to show her off and to show off her beauty to everyone around. And so he calls for the queen, for Vashti, to come. And he gets word back that she is refusing to uh, be summoned by him and be paraded about for everyone to gawk at. And so she refuses to do that. And this makes the king and all of his nobles quite angry the king, that the queen would refuse him. And so the king and all the officials kind of have this little cabinet meeting together, and they huddle up, and, and the officials say, you know, if we let the queen, you know, not obey her husband, if we let, if the queen can disobey the king, soon all the wives in the kingdom won't have to listen to their husband, and it can be disobedient. Needless to say, these dudes would not like marriage in 2020. And so they decide, hey, we, we can't let our women do this, and so the king dethrones Vashti as queen. He removes her as his queen. And that is where our story begins uh, with the search for a new queen. So Esther chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 5. We're going to go 5 to 10, and then we're going to skip down to six, and read 16 and 17. So read with me. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was, charged, who was in charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. 
and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. All right, now skip down to 16. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes and to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the 17th year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the virgins, that he set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. The word of the Lord. So, understand what's going on. These officials, because they're in a search for a queen, these officials go across the entire kingdom, and they are charged to find the most beautiful women, girls in the kingdom. These girls are not asked, hey, do you want your one shot to become queen? Come with us. They're not asked that. They find the most beautiful women, and they take them against their will, abduct them from their homes, and force them uh, to go uh, and train for a year uh, to, to, to learn about what it means to be a good wife to the queen. And they train for a year, and they're going to have their one night with the king to impress him with the hopes to become queen. Scholars estimate that around 1,000 girls were taken from their homes, um, and, and so they're taken against their will, forced into this, uh, and learned to be what it means to be a good wife. Now, one of four things could have happened to these girls after their year of training was up and they had their one night with the king. One, they failed and they became a part of the harem, and the king never called on them again, for, never wanted their services again. But they could still never go and marry someone else. They will be in the harem for the rest of their life because once you've been with the king, no other man can touch you. The second thing is that he kind of likes her. She's kind of she's good. And so she becomes part of the harem, and every now and again she gets called upon to come and perform for the king. Third, two or three of the girls might have impressed the king enough that he would actually marry them. They would not become queen but they would have a special status and their children would be heirs and their families taken care of and looked after. And only one girl of all thousand would become queen. Esther was one of these girls taken against her will. Her uncle Mordecai tells her right before she's taken to not reveal to anyone the fact that she is a Jew. Because at this time, the Jews are living here in Persia as captives and exiles against their will Forced from their home, they are second-class citizens. So Mordecai tells her, don't tell anyone who you are, who your people are. And so Esther is in a tough spot. Should she refuse to have her one night with the king? Should she lie about who she is? If chosen, should she refuse to marry this pagan king? Esther spends her year in training and has her one night with the king, and she finds favor in his eyes, and she is chosen to become queen of Persia with Xerxes. Now, why is any of this important, and why is this in the Bible? Esther is a Jew, and like I said, the Jews are in trouble. They're exiled from their home. They're separated from the promised land, separated from the temple of God. And there are, uh, there are a group of people in Persia, particularly Haman, who is the second in command under the king, who want to eradicate the Jews. They want to kill all of them, and he is plotting to do that. And so now Esther, a Jew, finds herself in a situation where she is able to help her people. She's queen. She has the, the ear of the king, 
And this whole thing seems like it is the secret plan of God to save his people. But here's what is really interesting about this book. Throughout the entire book of Esther, there is not one mention of God in the whole book. He is never named, never mentioned. There is not uh, one other book in the Bible that ever does that. This is the only book that does not mention God. And it's interesting that the author seems to even go to great lengths not to mention him. When it seems obvious that he should, he never does. It seems bizarre because anytime God's people are in trouble in the Bible, God powerfully shows up. He responds. He comes to deliver them. And when he shows up, it's obvious when he shows up, right? Like, think about it. When, when they were slaves in Egypt, God brings the ten plagues. When there's an army at their back and an ocean at their front, he parts the ocean. When the Jordan River blocked their path, God stops the river from flowing. When armies rose up against them, they easily defeated the most difficult of enemies. God sent fire from heaven. God uh, rescued servants from fiery furnaces and lion's dens. When God shows up, you know it. It's obvious, but not always. Here in this story, Israel is in trouble. God is never mentioned. There is no prophecy, there is no miracle, there is no vision, there is not even a dream. Instead, what we see is a string of coincidences. That if just one of these coincidences does not happen, Israel, the people of God, would have been eradicated and destroyed. Think about it. The king throws a party. The king gets drunk. Ashti, the queen, refuses to come see the king. She gets dethroned. Esther just happens to be beautiful. And if you keep reading the story, her uncle, Mordecai, happens accidentally to be in the right place at the right time to overhear a plot that some dudes want to kill the king. And because he hears it, he's able to tell Esther and save the king's life. But the king forgets to honor Mordecai for saving him. But one night, the king couldn't sleep and he calls for the books of his reign to be brought in so he can read over uh, kind of the timeline of his reign. And when he reads that, he remembers, he, he reads about Mordecai saving his life. And so then he, he goes to honor Mordecai. He's like, hey, bring that Mordecai guy back because I never did anything for him. And at that exact moment, Haman, the second guy in command, was trying to have him hanged. He just built a giant gallows to have him hanged. But because the king was going to honor him, he saved his life, then found out what Haman was going to do, had Haman hanged instead, and then found out about the plot to kill the Jews and allowed Esther to save them all. If all of these events and more did not happen, Israel would have been eradicated. Coincidence after coincidence, ordinary things happen. When we see the ten plagues in Egypt, we go, man, there's God saving his people. But when the king gets drunk, when the queen refuses to come, we just think, oh, that's just a part of the story. That's just, that's just irrelevant. It's just a, a normal thing that happened. There are not coincidences that just happen to work out in Israel's favor. This is God at work. God is working through ordinary, seemingly insignificant, mundane ways. Small things that don't look significant but are. We must not mistake God's silence for his absence. One of the main ideas of this whole book is that God is always working even when you can't see him. Even when it's not fire from heaven and 
miracles and these big things, God is always working even when you can't see. And so when we look back over this year and we see all the disappointments, all the frustrations, all the anxiety and the fear and the loss and the difficulty, we must not look at this year as if God has abandoned us or that God had uh, put his plans on hold like we did, but that God has been at work this year in every one of our lives in ways we don't even necessarily see. More often than not, God is using the ordinary, mundane, seemingly random coincidences in your life to accomplish his plans. What has God taught you this? What sin or problem has God exposed in your heart, in your life? What blessings has God given or reminded you of? How has he strengthened you? Many of you have gone through really hard times this year. But know this, even when you can't see him or tell what he is up to, God is with you and he is at work in your life. Trust me. Here's the truth of it. You can never accuse God of not working in your life because how would you ever know? If God uses these small, uh, mundane, just normal things, how could you ever know that he wasn't working? And see, it's only when you look back. It's only when you look back you can see God's hand at work. Only now, looking back, can we see that God's plan for the, the king to throw a party, for the king to get drunk, for him to call on his wife, for her to refuse, all of these little things. Only looking back, can we see the hand of God at work? Save his people. God is always working even when we cannot see. And so the, when the king throws his party, the sole purpose, like I said, was for the king to parade everything that he owned through the palace for everyone to see how rich and powerful he was. Because in Persia, in Persian culture, the most important thing about a man was the size of his wallet and the size of his power. And the most important thing about a woman was her beauty. Aren't you glad that we have become so civilized that we are beyond such things now? No, really not much has changed. That we find ourselves, even as followers of Jesus, selling out to the cares of the world. A world in which external things matter more than anything else. Your image, your reputation, your power, your money, your beauty, the number of social media followers or likes you get. Think about these 1,000 women who are taken from their homes, who train for a year. They learn to apply makeup perfectly. They learn to smell perfectly. They learn how to perform for the king because unless you impress the king, your life was essentially over. And like them, we sell out to the promises of the world. If I lose enough weight, I'll be pretty enough and I'll be happy. If I make more money, I'll be happy. If I get that promotion, I'll finally have the respect I deserve. If I get married, I'll be happy. And what we find as followers of Jesus is this, that we will betray the most basic beliefs of our faith to get the things we think will make us happy. We will overwork and forsake our families and our responsibility to make more money or to rise in the ranks at work. We will harm our own bodies to look pretty enough. We will date and marry someone who doesn't believe in Jesus or, you know, not like really like we do and we'll justify it because you think marriage will make you happy. But when Daniel was captured by Babylon, he still followed the food laws. 
he still prayed even when they threw him into the lion's den. He remained faithful to God. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down and worship an idol, they refused and were thrown into the fiery furnace. But when Esther had her shot, she blew it. She failed. She sold out to the culture. She lied about being a Jew. She broke the food laws. She slept with a man who was not her husband, and she married an unbeliever. And she doesn't do any of it under this justification of being some kind of spy who will save her people. She just does it to save her own neck. Esther has a terrible start. But by the end of the story, we find that she becomes brave. She steps up, she owns who she is, and she risks her own life to confront the king and save her people. She starts off by selling out to the world. And she blows it as a follower of God. But God takes her disobedience. He takes her failures. He takes the broken pieces of her life and he uses her for good. Here's what I want you to understand. No matter how badly you have screwed up, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how often you have sold out to the world and cared more about what the world could do for you than what Jesus was calling you to do. No matter how far you have fallen, you are still living plan A of your life. You're not on plan B or C. You cannot write yourself out of God's story. There is no plan B for your life. You are still on plan A. So often I meet people who think that they can't know God or be used by God like these other people can know or be used by God because of the mistakes that they've made in their life. Hear me. God is sovereign over your story. When God picks up the mistakes and the broken pieces of your life, it will not look like the hobbled mess of a preschooler's craft. It will look like a masterpiece. The Bible is full of people who have failed again and again and again and fallen short and yet have been mightily used by God. The message of the Bible is not God saves those who are good, moral, and clean. Rather, the message of the Bible is this, that God persistently and continually gives grace and love to people who don't ask for it, don't deserve it, don't appreciate it once they get it. That's the message of the Bible. That you can never screw your life up so bad that God is not able to correct your course. He is the author of your story and is always in control even when you don't see him. 2020, believe it or not, is God's plan A. Not plan B. It didn't catch him off guard and he had to force correct. He didn't have to salvage this year. This year was his plan. It is here to fulfill his purposes. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not the best we could get under the circumstances. It's God's plan A for your life, for our church, and for the world. God is always working on your plan A life. He can always pick up whatever pieces Whatever brokenness we have caused and make it beautiful. So God is always working, whether we see him or not, on your plan A life. And finally, he is always working to make you beautiful. 1 Samuel uh, 16 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, 
but God looks on the heart. And, you know, people use this all the time, this idea that God looks at the heart as a way to encourage one another. That so after someone makes a mistake, they'll often say something like, you know, uh, you know, man, uh, God doesn't care about all that stuff you did. He just cares about your heart. You know, I know you did wrong. I know you messed up. I know you did these things, but God just cares about your heart. Or, you know, when you feel accused by someone, someone is attacking you and, and you're defensive, you say, well, you know what? God knows my heart, so whatever. You can think whatever you want. That's not a good comeback. And it's not an encouraging thing to tell someone, well, hey, God knows your heart. Because if God looks on my heart, I am terrified about what he will find in it. It is a scary place. It, my heart is wicked, selfish, prideful, arrogant, and all sorts of other really terrible things I can never say in this place. The Bible even tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can trust it. And so, telling someone that God cares about your heart to not be worried about the external isn't a, isn't a good thing. There's an old, old story written by a guy named George MacDonald called The Princess and Curdie. And in this story, this fairy godmother comes to Curdie and he tells him, hey, I need you, you're gonna have to go and rescue the king and the princess. And Curdie's ready to go do it and the fairy godmother says to him, but you're gonna have to be aware on your journey that you will find people who look beautiful on the outside but are monsters on the inside. And you will find people who look like monsters on the outside, but who are actually beautiful on the inside. And if you can't tell who is who, you will fail on your journey because you won't know who to trust. And so she gives him this power that when he touches someone's hand, he will be able to see who they truly are. And so to show it, to, to show him how this power works, the fairy godmother brings what they call this loathsome creature, this monster before him. And he's terrified, he's scared, he's shaking in his boots. And she says for him to touch him, and he won't do it. This creature is described as, as a creature having a short body, legs like an elephant, head something between a polar bear and a snake, green and yellow eyes and bottom teeth that stick up like icicles out of its mouth. And she tells him to touch it, and he closes his eyes, and he reaches out, and he touches the hand of this monster. And the book says, what a shudder of terrified delight ran through him. Instead of the paw of a monster, he held in his hand the soft hand of a child. What would Curdy see if he touched your hand? Be honest with yourself. I'd be scared to let him touch mine for fear of what he might find in you. You know, we make all kinds of mistakes in this life because we judge by outward appearances. Choosing a spouse, think about this. You don't, uh, sometimes you don't even get considered, by, you don't consider marrying someone unless they meet a certain level of attractiveness that you think you deserve. And so you pass up on great potential spouses because you care more about their outside than their inside. When the king says to Esther, I'll be your spouse, while that sounds good, while that sounds encouraging, it's actually exhausting because she will have to work so hard all the time to keep up appearances on the outside. She'll have to maintain her beauty. She'll have to maintain her charm. She'll have to continue to impress the king so that he doesn't grow bored of her and just find a new queen to replace her. Done it before, why not do it again? And so to be queen is actually exhausting. And so when God says to us over and over again in the Bible that he wants to relate to us as a spouse, not as a king, not as a master, but he wants us to be like a spouse to him, our first thought is like Esther's situation, that would be exhausting. Like I'd have to read my Bible every day. I'd have to be like a theologian. 
I'd have to never think anything bad. I'd have to never get angry. I'd have to be so buttoned up and perfect that it would be not just exhausting, but impossible. But if you had Curdy's power, if you had Curdy's power and you could take Esther's hand in the middle of her story, you would find a loathsome monster, a woman who was not pleasing to God. And yet God takes Esther by the hand. He holds her. He stays with her. He's patient with her. He loves her, and he turns her into something. You see, Esther gets to this point in the story where she is ready to confront the king. She's ready to tell the king that she's a Jew and that her people are in jeopardy and that he has to save them. But if the king doesn't like what she has to say and he moves his rod, then she'll be put to death. And when she's talking to this about her friends, they say, don't do this because if the king doesn't like it, he's going to kill you. And Esther gets to a place where she says this. After doing everything else to save her own neck, she says, if I perish, I perish. I perish, I perish. She's gonna go before the king, save her people. You see, in the story of Esther, we get a foretaste of Ephesians chapter five, where it says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present her as radiant without stain or blemish. Esther gave up her life to be with the king and she risked her life to save her people. Esther points us to Jesus and Jesus doesn't just say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus says, when I perish, I'll perish for my people. He doesn't just risk his life, he willingly gives it. Jesus is the only spouse that willingly gives up his life for you, not because you're lovely, but in order to make you lovely. Here's the point. A bride on her wedding day is absolutely beautiful, perfect in every way. No matter whether in real life she is actually you know, beautiful, like maybe underneath all the makeup and the hairspray and the expensive dress, she might not look great, but on that day, she's beautiful. On that day when her husband walks down the aisle, his heart will burst with love. And Jesus is saying, no matter what you look like on the inside, no matter how much of a wreck your life is, I will clothe you in my own righteousness, so surround you with my own beauty and cleanse you that the the, the sight of you, God's heart will leap and burst with love. And he is saying, I have never seen anything more beautiful and perfect. See, Jesus died not just to take you to heaven, to make you lovely and perfect. This year has been hard. But if you belong to Christ, God is working through this year to make you beautiful. He is removing every spot and blemish and imperfection to make you radiant. And often he has to use difficult things to do that, to refine us, like when you put gold or a precious metal into a fire to burn off all of the impurity so that only the precious jewel remains. So this year has been like a fire that God has had to put us through so that he might burn away all the imperfections and brokenness within us. God is always working. Even when you can't see him, God is always working. On your plan A life, God is always working make you beautiful inside and out. The only when you understand that Jesus willingly and knowingly perished on the cross, knowing exactly who you were, knowing exactly all of your brokenness, when you get that, when you're able to see that truth, 
2020 will be seen in a new light. Not simply a difficult, frustrating, sad year, but you will see the hand of God working, always working, even when you can't see him, even when it's not obvious, even when it's just a string of coincidence. Be able to see 2020 and all the other difficult things you in a new light. God was always with you. They never left you. And even when fire didn't fall from heaven, you can trust that he's, that he's always working. Father, we look at this year and we're excited for it to be over because for it to be over gives the illusion that the difficulties of this year are over. We're excited for 2021 because it comes with the promises of hope and newness and things being set right. But Lord, help us to understand that no matter what trials we face, no matter how disappointing 2021 will be, no matter the difficulties we face, no matter what happens that you are at work and that you have a plan, just as you used all of these little things in Esther's story to save her people, and that you transformed her to a person who was brave and went down into the face of death, saved her people. So too are you making us beautiful. So too are, are you not trying to scrap together our life to come up with plan B or C or to, to see what you can salvage from the remains and the wreckage of our life. But God, you look at our life and it is always plan A. It is exactly headed in the direction that you wanted it to go because you have a plan and a purpose. And then we have to go through the fire. We know we will come out on the other side radiant and beautiful and lovely. We know that if we trust in Christ, that these are the promises we can hold on to, that you are always working, always working even when we can't see you, always working on our plan A life and always working to make us lovely. So Father, no matter what we face the rest of this year, no matter what we face next year, help us to know and to trust and to rest that you are working and are present in our lives. Thank you. You are here this morning and you cannot have those hopes. You cannot have that rest or that trust because you have never given your life to Jesus. Let today be the day you do people up here at the front as we sing this next song if you if you want someone to pray with you about this year or this coming year if you want someone to pray with you about something going on in your life or if you want to know what it means to follow jesus would you come up here and let us share that with you god give us a strength to respond how we need to in christ's name we pray all people said stand and sing